Welcome to How To Academia. Leaving high school and joining the world of uni can be a weird and difficult time. On this podcast, we talk to our friends, students and academics, to find out how they went about the process of developing professional skills, dealing with challenges, and generally navigating the gooey mess of being a human in the academic world. Our guest this episode is Danielle Watson. Danielle is a senior lecturer and research training coordinator at the School of Justice at QUT. I'll let her introduce herself in the interview, but since she didn't talk up her research, I'll mention that Danielle's work focuses on policing and security in small island developing states in the Caribbean and the Pacific, for which she has been awarded several highly competitive awards and grants. Without any further ado, Danielle Watson. So, who the hell are you? <laughs> I am Danielle Watson. That's my name, my English name. I'm an islander from the Caribbean, identified as an African woman. Never mind, I can't claim to be Scottish, although I have a Scottish grandfather, an Indian grandmother. I've been assigned African woman. So, yeah, that's me. Um, I'm the only girl from a family of nine boys. I'm the last. <laughs> uh, grew up in a rural community and the, near to the beach in Trinidad where Columbus landed when he discovered the, discovered Trinidad and Tobago. So that's me. Discovered in inverted commas. How did you end up here? How did you, or better still, let's backtrack. How did you end up in academia? I knew I wanted to be in academia because it was the only way to not end up in the military, the police, or married. So I'm from a service family. All the men in my family are police or military, and all the women are married to police or soldiers. So basically, the only way to get out of an arranged marriage is if you're studying. So when I finished my first degree, there was a husband, a potential husband waiting, so I decided to do a master's. <laughs> <laughs> he was still waiting, so I signed up for a PhD, and I realized he wasn't going anywhere, so I needed a way to stay in school, and my PhD looked at, of course, security service providers in my country, so I just stayed in that area, and trying to avoid marriage, I fell in love with academia. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I want to say that's a better choice. <laughs> I think so. Really? He's still single. <laughs> yeah. Still waiting. Yeah. Um, so how did you end up in Australia? I applied. Australia has partnerships with the Caribbean island countries for fellowships and scholarship opportunities. I applied for an Endeavour Executive Fellowship during my PhD to visit Australia, and I got it. So I spent a month here as an Endeavour Fellow fell in love with Australia and started to look for opportunities to come back. That was in 2015 and I got the fellowship. I, I came in 2016 for the fellowship and I got my first contract here in 2019, three years later. Cool. Now, I'm just going to like, because we're audio recording, go with yeah. the blatant obvious here. Uh, <laughs> not just the uh, gorgeous accent, but you are in fact uh, a woman of colour yes. with beautiful braids <laughs> yeah. uh, who I imagine spends a lot of time amongst the very white school of justice. <laughs> uh, 
going, these people are not like me. Yes. And so I guess what's been your experience with dealing with being unlike the people around you? Uh, It's been, for the most part, interesting. There are the highs and lows in, in terms of interacting with my colleagues and my students. My colleagues aren't like me and my students aren't, aren't like me either. There is no other Caribbean islander here. So basically you're grouped with Pacific islanders who have very little to nothing in common with Caribbean islanders mm. other than color, skin color. I, when I got here, I was told I was in the most diverse faculty. Uh, at that point, there was myself and one Torres Strait islander. So I guess we represent diversity. Yeah, and it's the first time I'm in an environment where I'm the only black woman. So that's very different. And uh it got to a point where I started getting excited when I see other black people and I just want to smile and talk to them because I'm just so different. I can't speak my uh native language. There's no one to speak it with. I have to constantly remind myself to speak slowly and speak standard English because the Caribbean accent, my accent is not popular here. So it's not easy for my colleagues or my students. Sometimes I say things to my colleagues, crack a joke and they look on their face. It's either they didn't get the joke or they missed it because of my (laughs) accent. It's, uh, it took a lot of adjusting, even with students. So I don't do full recordings, for example. I do voiceover PowerPoint presentations only to make my accent more bearable and to make it easier to revise when my accent is a challenge. So it's been interesting. I guess what's been the... I'm interested in, you know, as a professional woman in mm-hmm. academia and uh, the challenges that you've raised around being a woman of colour with a different accent is that does that come with an emotional load or does that come with additional not just I guess practical challenges but different needs for resilience I think it comes with it has its own baggage what I've found about the Australian context is everyone is very interested on the surface in being careful careful not to um, say things that might be discriminative, careful not to say things that might be considered racial or offensive. And in being careful, you end up being excluded sometimes, or you end up being offended or being the offensive person. I remember a colleague trying to, when I said my surname was Watson, she asked me if I knew Elizabeth Watson, someone named Elizabeth Watson. I have a cousin named Elizabeth Watson. So we went on and on trying to describe this person. And at no point she felt comfortable to say Elizabeth Watson was a white blonde woman, (laughs) which would have saved us a lot of issues going around the description but uh, I was later told it would be inappropriate and it could have been offensive. So I asked, what's wrong with calling a black woman black or identifying a white woman as white to a black woman? Where is the offense in that? Um, so, And there is none, but people are so busy being careful to not offend you that they don't realize they're being offensive. Yeah. Yeah. So what, I guess in terms of communication, yeah. how could we do communication better? One of the things I'm really interested in and cautious about is that that whole 
way that we paternalistically as mm. a you know as a white person paternalistically deal with people of color and that kind of sensitive overly yeah. sensitive thing which is what you're kind of speaking to yeah and i think it i think it's actually really quite patronizing <laughs> yes but how do we like i also think we need skill sets in how to do that better from your perspective what would make your life easier i think it it's difficult in this context because I, I feel like my life is very easy. I feel it's extremely easy compared to what it was in the Caribbean. Personally, professionally, everything is just easier here. So I can't think of a way that interacting with people could make it easier. I think everywhere they're annoying, poorly informed, or people that would be um, not ideal to interact with. And in terms of where I'm coming from and having to toughen up, as I said, I'm from a military family, so maybe I'm more resilient than most. What makes my life easier is toning me down because everyone else is being so careful. I end up being the disruptive or, for want of a better stereotype, the angry black woman. (laughs) So now I'm becoming more suited for the context and tapering my words. So that's how I'm making life easier, not... The people I deal with who may not be as informed, but adjusting who I am to fit the context. Mm. That's a... I feel like like that comes with a... And I know that we all adjust who we are to fit contexts all of the time, but privilege absolutely does play into it. As I say, life is easier here because everyone is so busy being careful that I feel sometimes I have an advantage. I feel like the real black swan in the lake, like nobody would contest whether you're you're always assumed to be the most vulnerable. You're always assumed the less is expected of you. And there are so many assumptions that for some would be negative, but I see them as positive because it's like you're expected to be the vulnerable victim. So there is more support. So sometimes it works. Like, <laughs> I guess the higher expectations would exist for you as opposed to me as a white woman in academia. You're expected to perform a particular way because the assumption is that you have had all these privileges that me as someone from a developing small island country would not have had. Mm. So... In my opinion, it would be unfair to you, but to say that would take away from the fact my vulnerability and my assumed need for assistance to move forward, if that makes sense. See, when I talk to you, like, I feel like you resonate strong, independent woman. Like, I feel like that's what you project Mm. outwards. And so it seems to me there's this conflict there between your assumed vulnerability from Mm -hmm. the white perspective looking in and your own sense of self. How do you reconcile that? I think, well, I know I'm a strong woman and I'm a strong black woman because there is no other choice because you have to be. Um, my, My girlfriend, one of my very close friends, she's New Zealander. She's a white Kiwi. And we respond differently to situations and we were talking about how we even respond differently to each other in the same situations. So if something happens, my first thought would never be to get counseling or the uh, the Australian context is the first time I've heard so much about your mental health. 
since I came here, my mom passed away and everyone kept saying, you need time to grieve. And I'm from a context where you need to push on because the more of your time you allow this to consume, the more of your life you can become lost in it. When my mom passed, there was grief concern and you cry and you get over it. Not forget about what happened, but you move on. You don't allow yourself to become buried, overwhelmed by the reality because it, it could be destructive. And that's where I'm from, where you have to be strong. You have to find strength. You have to look for ways to rise above the challenges. And this is who I am. But I spend so much time empathizing with my friends who aren't from the same context as me. Mm. So it's like you can understand, I'm sorry, this affects your mental health. Your, it causes anxiety, but these aren't words that I would use to ever describe my situation because I feel like I don't have that luxury. I'm here with a child, a single parent without family. I don't have the luxury of breaking down. I don't have the luxury of taking weeks to recover if I feel like I need to grieve because what happens to my life and my child? I don't have that support mm. system. So you, I guess it, you're just programmed to work differently. I don't know. I mean, I feel like there, were, there are students who are in similar situations where they have a lot of mm. personal responsibility with no family support and they're yeah. often very young and in precarious financial positions and trying to balance their education with their mm. other life demands. What would be your best advice to them? <laughs> no, I'm totally putting you on the spot here. Like, how, What's your pep talk to them? Um, if I'm talking to Australian students, what I would say would be different if I'm, if I identify someone as a Caribbean Islander, uh, after my PhD student just graduated and she's unemployed, she's looking for jobs. She just got back home after this scholarship and she was celebrating because she got three A's and no changes were required. And everyone was sending her emails, congratulations, congratulations. And I sent her email and said, you want to be in academia, you need to come down off that high and focus on how you're turning your PhD into publications mm. before the job that you intend on applying for open up. So please round up this celebration today and send me an outline tomorrow. And that would be my pep talk to her. And she gets it. Yeah. But that's not something I would say here to the Australian student that, that you just spoke about because the context is different. So what would you say to that? I'd say to them, look at, uh, I'll point out, I'll Google all of the support that's available. For example, yes, the support with assignment. If the student has financial issues, I've been reading about Centrelink and Australian support, financial supports that's available, um, bursaries. So I'd look at what's available and point out to the student that there are support measures available in the system and they need to look into what those are. I actually write different emails for students. So I would write the email and then adjust the wording for this context. <laughs> it seems to me that there's a lot of self-moderation going on here and a yes. lot of, like there's a lot going on behind the scenes that you wouldn't ordinarily see. Yeah. That's why, because these people aren't like me. I think before coming to, before starting in Australia, I was at the University of the South Pacific. So it's Islanders who are nothing like 
me or Caribbean Islanders. Mm. So you have to adjust. You have to adapt. The first time I asked a Pacific Islander male if he needed help in the classroom, he threw a chair at me and killed the projector because I had insulted him. I had offered a man help, an older man help, when he said, he said the assignment, the online feature didn't work. I asked him if he knew how to use it and I started walking towards him to help him. And I had committed a great cultural offense that everyone else understood mm. in the room. So when he threw the chair and started swearing, I was offering to help him more. So I was making things worse. Yeah, right. That was my first class in Fiji as uh, my first lecture, my first appointment. And it made me very aware that you need to adapt your strategy for the context. You can't take it for granted. Does that not make you cranky, though? Because that makes me cranky thinking that's, that's inherent sexism. And, you know, well, that's inherent racism. And, like, it didn't What The only time I got upset was when I was asked to apologize to the student for committing a cultural offense. And I said, no, the student needs to apologize. And if he doesn't apologize, I'm not going back to the class. So even the institution recognized I was the one that did something wrong. And when I said I'm not, and he had to apologize, after writing a two-page complaint, he wrote a letter, Dear Darielli, I am sorry for whatever it is I have done. And I was advised to accept the apology because that took a lot out of him as a chiefly male. So it was my first experience with other cultures, and it didn't make me crank. It's just like, oh, this is another way to see things. Because everybody else in the room understood what I had done wrong, but me. Does that not... I just, I keep coming back to you, and maybe it's, maybe it's my white privilege that I can afford to be angry about these things, but that really rankles my sense of justice. I don't know that I would be able to sit so calmly and openly with uh, that. It, it doesn't faze me. It, it didn't bother me, perhaps where I'm coming from. And I think the advantage of growing up in a family with all military men and, and police, it makes you tougher than probably even the average Caribbean islander because the jokes are different, the expectations are different in terms of toughness. So it didn't bother me. I just acknowledged it as a different context and it made me think, wow, you can't just take things for granted. You can't just assume what would work here would not would work somewhere else. So you and I'm mindful of that, which is why I do voiceover presentation instead of full recordings. Students would sit in a class looking at you and never understand a word you say and not tell you until the yeah. evaluation. They would complain, but they wouldn't tell you to give. That makes me angry. So instead of getting to the point where I do get angry when these things happen, I constantly adjust and adapt <laughs> so if we could if we could encourage students to meaningfully like if you're sitting there and you don't understand anything like even if it's not the accent even yeah. if you don't understand a concept or you don't understand a thought how do we encourage people to i guess actively address that issue rather than getting it to the, mm. just getting to the point where you complain at the end of the semester and i think students aren't comfortable in this context to say things that are considered mean or that are considered not nice and this is something I pointed out earlier everyone is 
very focused on being nice and being polite and they would see a question. I think, in my opinion, they might see a question about clarity as probably being offensive or insultive to the lecturer who would have spent time preparing the presentation. I think it's just a matter of if you're not comfortable to speak in public with some students and send an email the same way you'd send an email to ask about uh something not being posted, send an email to ask the question. And it, I think lecturers would appreciate more a question that a student might think is not a great question than absolute silence mm. in class. So ask the annoying questions. And even if it's an annoying question or a hard question, we're getting paid to deal with that. So I think less of a focus on being polite all the time and just ask the question whether the lecturer is able to answer the question or not. That's not the student's issue. That's not the student's problem. Uh, but it's the responsibility of the lecturer to find an answer and respond afterwards. So I think students just need to keep that uh, in mind. Find a way to ask the question. And if your biggest issue is about being polite, which I totally get, do what I do. Write the email and read it over. Change the wording to make sure that it's not offensive. Because this is what I, th- I think if we... Like, I feel as if I can come to you as a colleague yeah. and say, Daniel, I don't understand what's... Yeah. going on with this perspective here, I recognise mm-hmm. you might have a different perspective to me. Can we talk about what that yeah. means and do that respectfully rather than avoid yeah. the issue entirely yes. and then let it blow into something it's never meant to be? But then think about your colleagues. Is it the case where you would do that with every colleague or can you think of colleagues you would do that with that won't receive it well? And the answer would be yes, there would be people who won't receive it well, but how they receive it is not your responsibility. Which So it's not the student's responsibility to think of the lecturer may not receive the question well or it would be difficult because there would always be people like that in the world and... uh you ask your question and my thing is you're not responsible for how other people get offensive offensive or their inability to adjust to difficult or uncomfortable situations. That's not the student's responsibility. I feel also I feel if we just accept that things are gonna be uncomfortable and that's just part of life. Yep. Like and we might have to have uncomfortable conversations, but we work in the justice field which is yes. full of uncomfortable situations yes if you think about one of the topics that students were not so comfortable with um deaths in custody there is a lot in uh, the australian context to make stu- justice students angry when you look at local examples but because it makes you angry does that mean you're not going to talk about it or you're not going to deal with it or try to adjust it or acknowledge that there would be different views to yours about it. Mm. If that's the case, then you need to question whether or not you're a functional adult, not the information or the context. Mm. So one of the things is that, I guess that what I'm hearing is that self-reflection and considering your own perspective and position is something that's been really important to you in learning to adjust to experiencing difference. Yes, yes, that it, it's always important to acknowledge. I think the more comfortable we become with our own humanness, the more you acknowledge that you're human and imperfect. Like we're all trying so hard to be perfect in an imperfect society and you're always 
uh, trying to put over the best version of yourself. Nothing is wrong with that. It, it causes you to reflect. We need to determine where we draw the line. This interview was hosted by the wonderful Dr. Jody Deeth. Jody is also our co-producer, alongside the most excellent Dr. Caitlin Mollica. Editing by Kelsey Adams, that's me. Music by Poddington Bear. This podcast was developed with support from QUT. Thank you for listening.